Midlands Today on Midlands 183 with O'Brien's Mullingar. It's official Westmeath. No county loves Renault more. P.O.Brien.ie When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. How was your weekend? Coming up today, the Well in Moat cancels Thursday night dancing for the month of November. Such a long wait to get back into such a famous venue, so why were so few people heading out? Also, the Midlands may lose out on solar farms because of red tape. So says a representative group for the industry, but how do you feel about solar farms? Wind farms have been contentious before, solar farms much lower to the ground. Also, imagine, Man United supporters would probably say to David Moyes, welcome back, we acted too soon, all is forgiven. West Ham, third in the league. Full sports, including, by the way, several classic county finals across the Midlands. That's at 20 past 11. Now, when you call today, the number is 0818 300 103. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. What have we got on the front pages? First paper to hand, the Irish Daily Star. Gangland exclusive, it says. Which automatically makes me want to pass over it. Why glorify the activities of these guys? Anyway, blast from the past. It says, a buried gun could help solve a feud from 20 years ago. Now, the Irish Independent on its front page, uh, in fact, quite a lot of COVID on the front pages today, HSE vaccine queue jumpers will now get booster jab offer, it says. So non-frontline healthcare workers who jumped the queue for vaccines will be offered booster jabs as the latest phase gets underway, says the article. Um, all healthcare workers will be offered a vaccination about six months after the second dose. But there were some within payroll, pensions, admin departments who were getting early vaccination ahead of some of those of greater need. Anyway, we haven't learned from that. We're going to just repeat the process, it seems. And on the front of the Irish Times... Now, the main photograph is from Sierra Leone after a tanker exploded and the death toll at the moment, 101, and a further 88 people injured in that country. The main story on the Irish Times, again COVID-related, it says, if you're working in a contact tracing centre, your contract will be extended for a further six months if you want it because we feel we need contact tracing at least until next April, given the resurgence of COVID-19, thanks to the Delta variant and the unpredictability of the virus. Anyway, that's a selection of what's on the front pages. What is inside? Helen McEntee, the Justice Minister, back to work after her maternity leave. And today she is going to propose a new criminal offence of strangulation. Hard to believe it's not a specific criminal offence at the moment. It comes under the Non-Fatal Offences Against the Person Act, but because it is, unfortunately, a common feature of domestic abuse, 
she feels it needs to be a stand-alone offence. What sort of penalty should go with it? It's a very sensitive one, and we'll be back to that story later. On a brighter note, if you've been waiting to jet off to the United States of America, well, you can do so today. The restriction has been lifted. Dublin Airport is expecting 10,000 people this week to travel to and from the United States. And the Irish Independent talks to Mary McKenna of Tour America. She says there's huge interest for Christmas, Easter and summer. And naturally, she says, the price of flights is going up. So you should book now, now, now. What else is she going to say? Where in America would you like to go? I've always wanted to see Washington, actually. Because for many, many reasons, you've all the museums, but also it is the centre of power for a great part of the world and has been for more than a century now. Here's a strange one for you. The Irish Times lists the three best pasta dishes in the country. If you're a fan of the Italian food, uh, whether it is ravioli or the spag ball or maybe the carbonara, well, actually none of those dishes are mentioned. They're all incredibly fancy and I've never heard actually of some of these. Pumpkin capecialacci in the host restaurant in guess where? Dublin. Caccio e Pepe a Grano, which is, guess where, Dublin. And then aged parmesan and truffle ravioli with mushroom, uh, yeah, guess where, Dublin. So they say the best pasta in Ireland is in Dublin. I'm not so sure. Again, it's impossible for any reviewer to get all over the country. I appreciate that. But surely we have restaurants here in the Midlands that can serve up a damn good pasta dish. And it doesn't have to be something that you've never heard of. A little spaghetti bolognese, carbonara, uh, amatriciana. Oh, there are so many. And they don't have to be too fancy. Just a nice sauce, well-seasoned. Anyway, um, beware scammers. So John Daly writes in the Irish Independent about a new approach they're taking because traditionally you tend to get a phone call and it's from a guy or a gal and obviously their accent is not Irish. And it it shouldn't necessarily set off alarm bills, uh, but it tends to. Uh, If they have broken English, then you think, why would they be calling from my bank? The people in my bank at the call centre, they generally are able to communicate a little bit better. So what happened in this case This lady, who is 45 and considers herself rather savvy and wise to tricks, her phone rang while she was pushing the trolley around the supermarket, and it was a very nice gentleman, very well spoken. An older voice, she guessed he was maybe 60, and he told her that her television streaming service was trying to process a refund of €79.40. And And did you not receive our emails, madam? This refund is due to go inactive in less than an hour and we've tried without success to refund it to your credit card. And he wasn't putting on the hard sell. He said, Madam, my job is to just remind customers of refunds that are about to go inactive. Please forgive my intrusion into your busy day. And there was no desperation at all in his voice, so she began to trust him and she he basically worked on her for another ten minutes and 
told her a little bit about himself and he was uh, working in the call centre because the pension only goes so far and he had this caring voice and he showed her esteem and respect and guess what she did in the end? She gave him her bank details so that he could transfer the refund to her and when she checked her bank, €2,400, poof, gone. He didn't need the pension anymore, I'm guessing. Nursing homes are being urged not to reintroduce strict visitor restrictions. Sage Advocacy tells the Irish Times today how some of its members have reported residents being back to window visits only, staring at your loved one through the glass, which, especially if they're hard of hearing, is very, very difficult. Some nursing homes get a phone, and yes, you can hold it to your ear and try and have that back-and-forth conversation, but it's not the same. We don't want to go back there, if possible. Case numbers are expected to go above 4,000 COVID case numbers in the next few days. Uh, But at the moment, nursing homes are trying to keep visitor uh, arrangements very much as they have been, hold the line as much as possible. But if these are not isolated cases, if you have come across a nursing home where your loved one resides and the restrictions are back as they used to be, well, do tell me what the argument is. Um, Now, Adele was back on stage for the first time in years and she actually broke down, according to the Irish Sun. She was in tears and she admitted to her audience she was incredibly nervous. But she was at the London Palladium. The fans lapped it up. She delivered much of her new music. She had many special guests in the crowd. Dua Lipa, Idris Elba, Michael McIntyre. She brought her pal Alan Carr on stage. Actually, while she was trying to compose herself, she was in tears and had to reapply her makeup. She got Alan to entertain the audience. He tried to sing Make You Feel My Love. And, well, there were Lots of giggles from the crowd. So Adele very much back in action. Great to see. What do you make of the new material? Are you a fan? Anyway, let me know on 083 30 10 103. Dave wants you to think about this one. So the mink farm debate. We've put through, as a country, a ban on fur farming. And farmers will receive between four and eight million euro in compensation between them, obviously, not individually. That would be a massive sum. Anyway, Dave says, what is the difference in breeding an animal for its skin and breeding an animal for food? He says, mink may taste delicious for all I know. Has anybody ever tried it? I'm sure chickens and turkeys would be more than happy if we stopped breeding and eating them just because they taste nice. We eat lambs. And we use their skins to throw on our bedroom floors as rugs. And they look very nice. And everybody seems okay with that. So what is the difference in breeding an animal purely for its meat and breeding one purely for its skin? To me, it's a fine line, says Dave. Do you agree with him? Or is it acceptable to breed an animal when it's for food because you have to eat, whereas you don't have to wear a fur coat. Monday morning on Midlands 103, just after half past nine and still on the agenda today. The Well in Moat, a hugely popular venue for Thursday night dancing. Well, it's cancelled for the month of November. So my question is, after waiting so long, why were so few people going out? Was it nervousness? Was it just you better things to do on a Thursday night? You'd gotten out of the habit? We'll have that conversation in around 10 minutes' time. Now, which would you rather, if it did come to a choice, a 
wind farm near your home or a solar farm? Because there are difficulties for both, but in the case of an Offaly farmer whom we spoke with on Friday, David Connor from Clara has secured planning permission for a solar farm since 2016. He'll have to renew it, actually, because the planning will expire soon. But despite having ticked all those boxes, he cannot arrange a national grid connection and so the Danish company he's working with, Upton, they're naturally becoming frustrated and are looking at projects elsewhere. How unique is his experience? Well, I want you to meet Conal Bulger. He's chief executive of the Irish Solar Energy Association. Just tell us a little bit about your association, first of all, Conal. Good morning. Good morning, Will. Thanks very much for having us on. I'm delighted to be here to talk about what we think is the key challenge. Uh, the Irish Solar Energy Association... Uh, represents about 166 companies active in the Irish solar industry. So our members range from sole traders installing panels on rooftops to large-scale banks and international companies investing across the world. Our mission really is to decarbonise Ireland's power system. We do that through engaging relevant stakeholders, seeking to educate people on the benefits of solar as a technology and encouraging good practice amongst our members. And you're based in Eden Derry, of all places. I would have thought maybe sunny southeast. Why Eden Derry? <laughs> well, we have uh, we have a, we have an office in Eden Derry that manages a lot of our membership administration, but we're active all around the country. All right. So, on the technology side, first of all, tell us about scale and output, and what a typical solar farm has the potential to generate. So if we look at the kind of potential for Ireland, we see kind of a, our, our vision is very much a system with at least a six gigawatt contribution from solar What by 2030. What that would mean would be essentially that it's solar producing enough power to meet all uh, the residential demand in Ireland. So every home in Ireland being powered, uh, you know, the equivalent of every home in Ireland's electricity supply. And that would come from a mix of the utility scale, the large scale projects connecting into the national grid and also customer scale panels on homes, businesses and farms around the country. Now, one of the big things we see really is that if we don't uh, connect that volume of solar, we're not really going to hit our renewables targets because firstly, our renewables mix that includes solar actually gets more carbon off the system than one without and that comes from the fact that because solar runs during the day, it's essentially forcing uh, off the system less efficient, more polluting assets. So we found that by 2030, with those higher volumes of solar, uh, you could actually be knocking 7% more carbon out of your electricity supply than without it. Um, and actually, we haven't modelled a scenario yet where solar isn't saving customers money. We've, we've, tried to, we've tried to model scenarios with you know, very high volumes of solar on the system, and we found that the utility scale side would see 106 million euro being saved uh, for customers uh, per annum. And actually on the kind of customer side, uh, you could really, with the self-sufficiency point, you could really see um, real benefits. So just as an example, uh, Dublin Port uh, installed a lot of solar panels with batteries and electric vehicles, and they're, they're potentially 95% self-sufficient, meaning that they, they, you know, they can manage 95% of their own power demand. Uh, potentially. But whatever about in a domestic or in a business solution, as an Mm. option for the grid to draw from, one of the limitations presumably is that 
it has to be sunny. In other words, it has to be daytime. And when we think of these dark winter evenings, by the time people get home and peak demand is reached, your solar farms are offline. Well, it's daylight more than sunlight, we'd say. And yes, you do see a difference between um, winter and summer in terms of quality of output. But what it, it's really about uh, is a blended renewable system. You know, we're trying to get to 100% renewables. And we're only going to do that through maximizing solar and wind and other technologies. And really, the problem is that it, in Ireland at the minute, it's, it's costing too much. It's taking too long. And there's just too much uncertainty in the process as we go through. Okay, break that uh, down reason. for us. We gave the example of that farmer from County Offaly yeah. who's waiting and waiting and waiting for a grid connection. How typical is that? Uh, Dave O'Connor's experience is very typical, unfortunately. So just uh, just to kind of give a little context on why we think that's important before I go into the process a little bit. Um, you know, essentially, we, we find that it could result in Ireland paying more for its renewables than it needs to. And, you know, to meet our targets, we need to produce three times the amount of renewable electricity in 2030 that we did in 2020. So our ability to do that really depends on our ability to get these projects onto the system delivering power. So uh, as an example, uh, you know, the first large scale utility scale projects are connecting next year, we expect. But that's nine years after we established the Irish Solar Energy Association. Um, Once you get through planning, uh, you know, there's these annual processes you go into to get your grid connection. So say you, we- say you went in in 2020 in the September process, you're likely not going to connect till 2024, 2025, and potentially later in some cases. So th- that, that's uh, quite, <laughs> quite a long time. Um, and there's kind of, there's, a, there's significant uncertainty as well in that process. So when you get you get when you make your application, you get basically made a connection offer, which is essentially uh, talking about you know the date you're going to connect and the cost of your connection. When you sign the agreement that says what you what date you're going to connect to the system and how much it's going to cost, both of those change and both of those can change. So your costs can increase quite a bit um, when the uh, the network companies start doing more detailed work on the connection and the date if they don't meet the connection date there's no obligation on them there's no comeback to them so without getting too bogged down in in the technicalities of it but how different is that system to what you would find in other countries so we find that it's there we find that it's far more expensive than in other countries and that uncertainty is big difference. So like when we when I talk to international investors, they're honestly shocked that when you sign a connection agreement, the cost can change and the time can change. They just they absolutely <laughs> they find that baffling and must be said. And to, just to kind of give a sense of the cost side of it, just when I'm talking about uh, how much renewables cost in Ireland. Um, uh, well, so like in Ireland's renewable auction in 2020, the solar price in that auction was 73 euro per megawatt hour. So that's like for every unit of power produced, the, co- the all the, the costs to produce that are 73 euro. In this, now that compares to our electricity price this afternoon and tea time is going to be 250 euro per megawatt hour. Uh, so it's probably still good value considering where fossil prices are today. But the Spanish auction happened a few months after Ireland's auction and its price was 24 euro. 
uh, per megawatt hour. And that difference isn't because it's sunny. That difference is because, you know, we've made policy and regulation decisions here in Ireland uh, that kind of increase that cost. If you were over in the UK, um, just next door to us, uh, you wouldn't you you wouldn't be let bid 73 euro per megawatt hour. You can't bid over 68 euro per megawatt hour, and likely the price would be a lot lower. Um, the network base of that is a, is a big chunk of that. Um, so we've done analysis of a sample of uh, res projects. Well, members of ours have, and it suggests that your network costs of it, so that uh, would be about 24 to 26 euro per megawatt hour. So that's all the costs of building the network and all the costs that you pay for accessing the network. And so a big part of that is really uh, about accessing the system. You're trying to get the, the project onto the system. So you get this kind of quite inflexible process and you get this kind of quite expensive process with kind of lengthy timeframes, which can be quite a bit of a disincentive or a barrier. And I suppose, like, we've been, we obviously, this is something we, we spend a lot of time on. Um, and we sort of see there being three main causes to it, which we think have relatively straightforward fixes. Um, would it be helpful if I... Yeah, well, briefly, yes. <laughs> okay, sure. We think there's kind of, we, we think the three main issues are like overly conservative standards. So the, the system is designed around very kind of conservative standards. We say it's like designing the system for a windy, sunny night. Hmm. Uh, so, so like, you know, if your farmer uh, if your farmer is in a part of the network where there's space, due to the standards being really conservative, he actually might have to build a really long connection to another part of the network. So all of a sudden he gets an overly expensive connection compared to what he might do otherwise. The other side then is this kind of really rigid regulation around this. So all the projects have to connect into the public system. You know, if you have a data centre on one side of the road and a solar farm the other side of the road, they can't directly link up. They both have to connect separately to the network. Um, and so that kind of arrangement where the two can kind of connect to each other, we call a private wire arrangement. And that would re- we think that there's a lot of uh, benefit to those. They're done in um, a lot of other countries around the world. And so we're a bit of an outlier there too. And I suppose... Mainly what we really want is the politicians and the regulator to get serious about cost, really drive into these issues, really review these cost uh, elements and these time elements. You know, we've just published a climate action plan um, talking about 80% renewable electricity by 2030. That is now nine years away. And so we really have to just get faster and much more efficient about how we get these projects onto the system. Yeah, I suspect, uh, well, it's, it's in reality, it's eight, eight years away, eight years and two months only, so the clock is ticking. Uh, we've had the Climate Action Plan published in the last week. Uh, there may be, obviously, some further discussion around that. Of your three options, uh, linking to data centres directly, this private wire connection, that sounds like it's relatively straightforward. But is there a difficulty on the first point with uh, the technology within the grid um, and therefore there have to be these longer connections. Is, is there any way around that given the existing technology? It's not a technology issue. We find in other markets people can connect solar farms directly into the system. In Ireland what happens is you end up having to build a rather uh, significant uh, uh, kind of building between you and, this, you and the network 
and you have to kind of sterilise the land around it essentially and so like that land footprint of that can be as large as Croke Park whereas I have members who are in other jurisdictions just tapping in directly into the network so and is it, that for aesthetic com- reasons here obviously we have natural landscape that we wish to preserve what's the thinking it's actually because it's more of an impact on the landscape because you know you're building a brick building in a lot of cases and digging digging holes and foundations it's really it's back to kind of the philosophy and the standards the network companies use um that's that's what's driving uh, kind of it's a conservatism in, in approach there all right it's obviously a, a technical area one that requires uh sit downs by politicians and by stakeholders and uh, we wish you well in your discussions with them connell thank you for taking our call thank you very much connell bulger is ceo of the irish solar energy association which is based in eden derry now next the phenomenon and it was such a phenomenon of Thursday night dancing at the well and people travelled from all over the Midlands and beyond. It was a weekly pilgrimage and naturally one of the victims of COVID-19 too. We couldn't do this. So with huge anticipation, Declan Manton reopened the doors and discovered very few people were showing up. Let's talk about why next. Why would you be afraid to have a good night out? Is it COVID? Is it the fear of catching the virus? Is it that you've just fallen out of the habit of going out? Well, after a year and a half and much, much anticipation, the Well in Moat resumed its Thursday night dancing. And this was just a phenomenon once upon a time, a pilgrimage that people made from all over the Midlands on a weekly basis. And Declan Manton threw open the doors to discover very few people were showing up. Declan, good morning. Uh, good morning, Will. Pre-COVID, how busy was Thursday night? Uh, Thursday night was uh, absolutely fantastic here. Uh, you said it all there. It was one of the best-known dancing venues in the country for social dancing. And uh, we got them from uh, far and near here on a Thursday night. For, you know. And, and if you were uh, to put numbers on it, would you have had 100, 200? How many? Oh, my God. Uh, well... Well, it uh, depends on the band that we're playing. We'll say you could get 100, 150, 160, like, you know. So when and you uh, resumed, how many showed up on the first night? Well, we had a few people that just came to see, you know. But it really, all we had was 12, 12 uh, social dancers. Wow. 12 senior citizens, like, you know. But, I mean, but would you have uh, had inquiries in advance? I mean, certainly we've had calls for months asking, well, when, when can we go back social dancing? Uh, we had we had inquiries, we had inquiries, but next thing in comes this, um, this uh, ticket online, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, ticket online came in and uh, the people, the social dancers don't have access to a, a computer or, or, or ways and means of getting a ticket, like, you know. So, like, they were locked up for a year and a half, more than a year and a half. And the first minute they got back to go out dancing, here comes lockdown on a, on a online ticket. So that was another kick in the teeth, like, you know. Okay, if there was a solution to the ticketing issue, do you think you'd have the original crowd, or would some people still be reluctant? No, I wouldn't have the original crowd, but I mean, we'd have more than 12 people, you know. Um, and yeah, there's people out there that just still a little bit afraid of the whole lot. But you know, they, they would gradually come back one by one, like so. You know, they would, they, things would improve. 
but you know nobody can afford to run a, a show with 12 people in it you know I had uh, to put an extra staff in the door and uh, a barman on and uh, a band on and that's all we have So for how long is Thursday Night Dancing cancelled? Uh, we'll see how it goes uh, in December I'm watching other venues but <laughs> over the weekend I hear you know there's probably up to 25 or 30 venues after closing down not alone the well but all around the country and I take it from uh, Waterford Cork down to into Westford to Guinea, uh, up into Donegal. They've all closed down because they've all got the same problem as I have got. The senior citizens uh, cannot get access to a ticket online. Why would you be more optimistic about December? Well, you know, okay, November is November, like, you know, uh, we'd always maybe a drop back in November, but uh, December, just coming up to Christmas, that people just might, like, you know, but, you know, okay, I know the. Uh, the numbers are very high and they're increasing. But uh, I'm just going to have a look and see what, what's going to happen on the country like as well, you know. Uh, caller is wondering, is there any way you could facilitate phone bookings as opposed to online bookings? Does it have to be in the online form? Uh, we're looking at a few things. We're looking maybe uh, as an option of maybe doing a Sunday during the day. Uh, we're looking at... We have to get, you know, we have to get back dancing because uh, our, we miss those people. And, I mean, a lot of them lived for the Thursday night. So we had, actually, at one time, we had Thursday and Sunday. We decided we did Sunday over until after Christmas and give it a go with the Thursday. But we're looking at a few different options, uh, Will, and we're looking at the, uh, yeah, exactly, booking online or booking on over the phone and that's like, you know. Um, it's very hard to know what to do because um, the law changes and the regulations are changing so much and so fast. I mean, there's another meeting coming up tomorrow and God really knows what they're going to come up with, like, you know. Well, for those who are able to go out, have you any big artists you wish to give a quick mention to before we go? Oh, sure, look, I mean, uh, in the social dancing team, we have, uh, in the, with the Checkers and Mary O'Connor, Mikey Connors, Shamalai, Andy Fury, you know, we have the top of the social dancing bands here. And uh, it's just, it's wrong on them as well, because, you know, their dates are dropping off very, very fast. Mm. And they're waiting for a long time for the wells to open and 30 more wells around the country. <laughs> but it's, it's uh, well, the wells running dry. Uh, will. That's the way I put it. I'm sure it'll fill up again. It's only a question of when. Declan, well, thank you very much for taking I know, our call. I know, but I'm, we're, we're waiting and waiting and waiting. We'll see what happens. Okay? Thanks for the call, Declan. That's Declan Mountain from The Well in Moat. Now, on the way, the latest news from around the region and around the world. After 10. The crime of strangulation, this is a sensitive one. Uh, It's common in domestic abuse situations, but hasn't been a specific offence until now. Angela in Northwest Meath has called and she asks, Will, how many of the 400 plus ideas in this climate action plan will ever happen? Which are more important than others, which are going to cost me the most money? Great questions, and I'll get you some answers from half past ten. Also today, the Mount Temple man who was lucky enough to avoid that devastating explosion in Sierra Leone. You'll find out what he's doing in the country in an hour's time. And Clock Balacola become back-to-back hurling champions in Leash. You can catch up on everything else happening around the Midlands in sport from 20 past 11. 
And if there's something affecting you or your area today, my number is 0818 300 103 on text and WhatsApp. It is 083 30 10 103, powered by Land Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, will today announce a new offence of strangulation. This is going to be a difficult conversation. Just bear in mind for any sensitive ears that may be listening. It is not a specific offence at the moment, and yet it appears in domestic violence situations on an all-too-regular basis. Instead, it is covered under the Non-Fatal Offences Against the Person Act. Let's get some context on this from Anne Clark. She is the manager of Offaly Domestic Violence Support Service. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, Will. How often would you come across this in your work? Um, unfortunately, we come across it quite often and it's used mostly as a threatening behaviour within a domestic violence situation where it's, you know, the, the choking or strangulation is um, may have happened on one or two occasions and then it's used as a formative coercive controlling physical threat going forward in that relationship. So, yeah, unfortunately, this is quite common. And how successfully is it prosecuted heretofore? Well, like you said, it's never been really prosecuted as a standalone offence. It's really done under the Non-Offence Against the Persons Act. And we've spoken about this before, Will, where domestic violence itself is not a crime, that the different aspects that happen within that are treated under different acts within the judiciary. So um, we look at even most recent cases of um a uh, 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 guard, guard that, you know, only I think a couple of weeks ago, um, he got a three month suspended sentence for that particular action um, where he tried to strangle his ex wife and ex partner. Um, we've seen the recent case of Nadine Lott, and um, again, uh, uh, strangulation was involved there. So, you know, it, it is a very, very serious offence. But to single it out as a specific standalone offence, we welcome that very much by Minister McEntee. Why might that be helpful? Well, I think it will show the perpetrators that this particular offence has been taken very seriously. Even the threat of choking or strangulation has been taken seriously. And then hopefully we will get more women who will begin to disclose um, this risk very much in their relationship. And it's not just the physical action of, of strangulation we are looking and we have seen lots of sexual coercion where this uh, it's this defense of you know rough sex and the strangulation is part of that um so we're seeing some of that present as well so you know hopefully it will give the courage to women who may be experiencing this form of domestic violence to come forward and disclose that and know that this is there you know it's going to be the against the law to perpetrate this particular type of offence and that there is support and uh, redress there for the victim. Now, the Minister is only considering this as an offence. Um, in all likelihood, she will probably introduce it and it'll have to be defined in law with penalties. And here's a difficult one. What sort of penalty and punishment fits the crime? Well, we see that the UK Domestic Violence Bill passed in April was a really good example of how they took this standalone crime of non-fatal strangulation. And there was a huge campaign behind that. I mean, Rachel uh, Watson from the UK, who her, her herself was a victim of this, um, campaigned for a long time to have this recognised as a, as a standalone offence. And they have put in place up to five years in prison for non-strangulation. 
So I think uh, we could use that model that's very much in the UK. We've done that with the course control bill. So I think, you know, there's a lot of things to unpick, but I think to certainly we can move forward with that. It's a high-risk fatality. It, it really does uh, create huge risk within a relationship if you see that happening. And it's almost like a prerequisite for something more serious. So definitely I think that we welcome that Minister McEntee is going to really look at this and hopefully uh, recognise it as a standalone offence. Let's leave the law out of it then for a moment because as you've said this has the potential to escalate and there may unfortunately be a person listening who's in that situation. What is the best way to handle it? Yeah, we look at safety planning quite a lot and we try and if, you know, as a victim of domestic abuse and if you're in that very coercive, violent relationship, you recognise signs of that rumblings of incidents that may happen within your relationship. You know the different signs, you know the looks, you know what's going to happen. So we always say have a good safety plan in place, you know, have a code word that you can send to a friend that you trust. You know, don't get yourself caught in very tight spaces within your house, such as the bathroom or even the kitchen, where there could be potential weapons there uh, to, you know, to, that put you at further risk, such as knives. So, you know, make sure that your, your phone is charged, that you have, you know, the guards uh, on uh, speed dial, uh, all of these safety measures to ensure that you're going to be safe. And, you know, reach out and talk to somebody, you know, somebody you trust, not a mutual friend, because sometimes when you have mutual friends, that mutual friend may go back and tell the perpetrator what your conversation has just been. So somebody you trust or pick up a helpline, you know, the domestic violence um, women's aid helpline is there for 20, it's a 24-hour helpline. Or if you log on to Safe Ireland, there's, 39 different services around Ireland that you could call. Our own helpline number is 05793-51886. And we're very, very happy to talk to you in confidence, to talk to you about how to stay safe in the relationship and, and what protective measures you can put in place, such as a protective, uh, protective domestic violence order. Anne, always grateful for your time and for the work that you do. Thank you for taking the Thank call. Thank you so much, Will. No. Anne Clark from the Awfully Domestic Violence Support Service. And again, if you're online, odvss.ie. There are similar groups around the Midlands who are all too happy to help and you are not alone. Now, on to a brighter note, those who have relatives in the United States, or indeed if you just want to get on a plane and go somewhere new, well, America opens its doors to international visitors today. Dublin Airport is expecting 10,000 people to travel through there to the U.S., over the course of the next seven days. Will you be one of them? And if so, where are you going? Where's popular? And how have the airlines responded with prices? Nearly 20 past 10. And on the subject of guy clothing, congratulations to Anthony and his team being named Most Stylish Menswear at the High Style Awards last night. And well done, Indeed, a huge, huge achievement and, well, he deserves it, as does uh, Cara and, and indeed all the team there. So Guy Clothing, the most stylish menswear at the High Style Awards. Back to the issue of solar farms and their difficulties getting connections. Hilda says, well, when you have green ministers not getting their act together on forestry licensing, perhaps that's the issue when it comes to solar farms too, because... You can't have solar farms next to 
trees because of the shade. Interesting observation, isn't it? Um, also, Brian has sent a WhatsApp just in view of what we've discussed, the strangulation, uh, which will become a specific offence if Justice Minister Helen McEntee has her way. It won't just be dealt with through the non-fatal offences against the Person Act. There is a, t- a TikTok phenomenon uh, where you give a gesture seeking help and it actually saved the life of a 16-year-old whose distress signal was recognised by a good Samaritan and the gesture was made popular by the Canadians Women's Foundation. Um, it's hard to describe, but there are pictures which will tell a thousand words if you Google it, the uh, Canadian Women's Foundation uh, domestic violence signal. And if you are online and making social videos, that sort of signal could help get the word out. Anyway, thank you, Brian, for the lead on that. And also another helpful comment from him. He talks about when uh, when we're back to the solar farm debate, how many jobs are just there for the sake of it in planners, offices, in the ESB and air grid. Is it that decision makers perhaps don't understand what's presented to them, he wonders? Anyway, back to some happier thoughts heading off to Orlando to Disney World or to Universal Studios, maybe going to Manhattan to feast on all the wonderful restaurants of New York City, maybe going to Washington to see the White House or heading to the West Coast as well, taking a drive up along the Pacific Coast. Oh, the thoughts. Jackie Spain is here from JK Travel in Tullamore. Good morning, Jackie. Good morning, Will. So the US has finally opened up again. What do we need to know before flying there? Okay, well, thankfully, great news that the U.S. has opened up again. It's hugely important to us travel agents because outside Europe, it's perhaps our next biggest seller. It really is. And a huge draw for the Christmas shoppers, for the holiday makers, as you rightly said, Orlando, and then the, the thrill seekers of Route 66 and the likes. But before you travel, you must present a COVID certificate. You must be vaccinated. Plus, you must present a negative PCR test. Oh, so you have to... It's not just good enough having the vaccination passport. You need a negative test as well. You need a negative test taken 48 hours before you travel. So, and don't forget, with with any of these, um, when you arrive in any country, not just the States, you could also be subject to a random PCR test. And this pulls into play the importance of people being properly insured, that they have COVID cover. You could find yourself in a situation where you pass your PCR test, board your flight, arrive in a destination, subsequently to find that you test positive on a PCR test. Now, if this were the case, you could, now it's, it's not a mandatory PCR, it's just random. It can happen and has happened. Um, that if you were to test positive on a, a PCR test, you would then be subject to the, the quarantine regulations of that particular state. It would be at your expense or at theirs? At your expense, yes. So you would need to have your travel insurance in place, and it's really important to make sure that you not only do you have travel insurance, 
but you have COVID cover on your travel insurance. That it would that would cover you in this instance. Back to the specific requirements for the US. Do they recognise the AstraZeneca vaccine? They do. They do. They have um, they have relinquished that. That was originally a, an issue that they had, but they are now um, recognising AstraZeneca. Yes, it's not a, a, an issue any longer. What are the rules when it comes to children? Children at the moment, um, over 12, uh, a negative PCR test. Um, then, um, it will obviously, if they have their COVID search, you would bring that as well. Um, but at the moment, uh, negative PCR. At, there, there are rumours that they are implicating, um, or not implicating, um, bringing into force a passenger location form similar to that that they have in Europe. Um, but that is, that's very much in the air at the moment. It hasn't been introduced as yet. But what I would recommend to anybody travelling to the States is to stay abreast of the of the regulations. As we've said so many times on this show, Will, it's a movable feast and things can change quite rapidly regarding travel, particularly around the, the issue of COVID. So it's important for people to, to keep to keep in touch with whoever they've booked with or indeed the airline and just double check the, the regulations. Because as, as we say, today they're the regulations Mm. Next week, it could change slightly. Just to clarify then, children under 12, same rules apply as in Europe. They're pretty much free to go. Indeed. For now, Will. For now. Okay. There could, there could be a passenger locator form coming down the line. It hasn't been introduced. Like anybody that we have travelling at the moment, um, do not require one. But just keep... Um, Keep an eye out because that, that could be coming down the line. We'll watch that space. So airlines would have had very light loads until now. Obviously, there's going to be a surge in bookings. How have prices responded? Prices are still relatively OK. I mean, they're expecting the figures and the loadings to be at 2000. Well, 80 percent of 2019 loadings by March. And by summertime, they're expecting it to be right up to 90%, which is very, very good. And certainly if the amount of inquiries that we're receiving for the States is anything to go by, it's going to be a very, very busy year for the States. But like any destination, if there is a lot of interest and the, there's a lot of inquiries and a lot of bookings on particular flights, they, that will drive up the, the cost of the flights as it would for any destination. So at the moment, nothing startling about prices to the States, but it, it could change. And we're now in November, so presumably Christmas shopping in New York is the most immediate activity. Longer term than summer, you're looking at, I presume, Orlando and where else? Well, Orlando would be the biggest draw, it really would. And then after Orlando, it would be the West Coast, the likes of San Fran. LA that you know for a lot of the um, a lot of the younger clients would maybe take a month and go Route 66 or just drive the West Coast um, and of course what happens in Vegas shopping. stays in Vegas very much so <laughs> very much so um, but yeah the the immediate is Christmas shopping and well, of course the, the big big one at the moment is families reuniting really that's the, the big mm. one for now Jackie, always great to keep in touch. Thank you very much for the call. You're very welcome. Take care, Will. Jackie Spain from JK Travel.
in Tullamore. By the way, Tom has been in touch from Milltown Pass, Tom O'Hara. The vaccine requirement applies to non-US citizens, just to clarify. Thank you. Well, I noticed on Friday Christmas decorations are going up in shopping centres, says Idel. I can get used to that, she says, but I think the ads on the television now are much too early. Yeah, I think a lot of suppliers are trying to get their message out that they don't know will they have stock come December and they want people to buy early. Maybe that's retailers will still have plenty of toys on the shelves come the second or third week. But perhaps that's why the ads are on to get in ahead of... Will, you don't hate a chicken or a turkey. They just taste nice. This comes back uh, to Dave's argument earlier about mink farming. Why is it acceptable to breed animals for food but not for their... And one listener observes that, well, mink look cute. That's why they are getting protection and silkworms don't. Silkworms aren't exactly going to appear on a a nice card or a cuddly toy, are they? Now, Teresa, you went 15 months, as many people did, staying indoors, except for the odd doctor's appointment or hospital appointment. And you did whatever was necessary during the worst times of COVID-19. But last night, you went for a birthday meal to a well-known Midlands Hotel, Nobody asked for your COVID certificate and it was absolutely crammed with people. And you find that quite alarming. Yeah, and that's incredibly disappointing too. Now, I have noticed, to their credit, over the last two or three weeks, many restaurants, uh, more so coffee shops, I haven't been out for a proper meal, uh, but certainly sitting down for coffee, you will be asked, not alone for your COVID cert, but for ID as well. And there has been a tightening up on that requirement. So some are applying the rules with vigour and obviously others are not. Now, let's move on because we had a question earlier from Angela in North West Meath and I think it's on everybody's lips. She says there are 400 plus ideas in the Climate Action Plan. 475, Angela, to be precise. And she's wondering how many of them are going to happen? Which are the most important? And which are going to cost the most money for her and for you and for me. Trying to break that down is quite a challenge, but I think Dennis Leonard may be up to it. He's an environmentalist. He also happens to be a member of Westmeath County Council, but we leave off the political hat this morning. Good morning, Dennis. Uh, thanks for that, Will. And uh, Mary Robinson said to me 40 years ago when I got involved in environmental movements, she said, this work is far too important to be left to the politicians. So I, I think... Right. I think you're right on that one, you know, and uh, we can see more of it at COP26, a bit of COP on as needed, not COP26, I think, at this stage. But uh, we've been having this conversation many times, Will, and uh, you know what? It doesn't get any easier because uh, when I was involved in the 1980s in the Waste Action Group and Greenpeace and Voice and even with Troker on climate justice, uh, before Mayor Robinson became president and made climate justice something on everybody's lips, we had Kyoto, we had Paris, we've had so many, and she's right, we've had so many of, of, of these plans. And you know what they are? They're like a to-do list rather than an actual plan. And, and it's the devil, they all say the devil is in the detail. Well, I, I, I'm amazed, the 475 actions or whatever else, like 
realistically, how many of them are going to happen between now and 2030? Uh, how quickly are they going to happen? And as you're right, how much are they going to cost us individually? But like uh, any to-do list, Dennis, you'll do. tend to organise them in order of priority. So if right, yeah. you were putting number one, number two, number three, besides some of these actions, which would they be? Well, I would start with transport. And the reason I, I would start with transport is by far the most doable. Uh, followed by electricity, homes, uh, agricultural enterprise. But the reason I say transport is because we really need to roll out on a large scale public transport in our towns and our villages. It accounts for anywhere between 20 and 30 percent of our emissions. And so much of it is unnecessary. You probably covered last week the launch of Connecting Ireland. Again, ambitious, but a five-year plan. We are very slow to roll out rail services, cycling and walking infrastructure. And yet in the National Development Plan 2040, there are hundreds of projects like this that we can actually roll out. And biofuels is there, electrification of our bus fleets. But the idea of, of, of a million electric vehicles by 2030 may be ambitious. However, in the short term, we need to ask ourselves, are all these car journeys necessary? They certainly wouldn't be if we had rail interconnect and bus interconnect between our towns and our villages. I think that's a win-win for everybody that can be put on, on the board straight away. I think that would be my priority. Uh, but also, isn't there a difficulty, though? Because take the United States, more than 80% of the population lives in a city, whereas here in Ireland, I'm not sure what the figure is, but it's nowhere near that. So you've got physical distance as a problem and you can't connect everybody. Yeah, I agree with you, Will, but we have to remember in Ireland, one third of our economy is, is agriculture. And we've been we've had our farmers and so many people living around have been custodians of the land. Biodiversity is also very important for, you know, for this project to work. And I think that can't be lost in, in it either. But when it comes to decarbonisation, the fact is that you can still connect a lot of towns and villages where people can get an interconnector bus or a local link to a larger town and then get a train or a mainstream bus from there. And once people see that can happen, you know, the the older people are going to daycare, the people are going to hospital appointments, people are going to work, a lot more people are working from home. But the worrying thing in this is cars are now back at pre-pandemic levels. So that is going to push up our emissions, you know, far beyond where they need to be. But it, rather than just looking at initially at just culling cows or, or whatever else we need to do, that's something we can all do together as a nation to simply put more people back on buses and trains like we were years ago when we had three times the amount of rail track, believe it or not, at the turn of the, of the, of the 1900s. We actually had far more buses, you know, 50 years ago than we have now, certainly connecting a lot of rural towns. We need to go back to that. We just got too dependent on the car. The motor industry had too big of a lobby in this country, and basically they drove us onto cars, and now we see the price of diesel going through the roof. It's becoming unsustainable. Let's move on to energy. So there are two strands to this. One is to cut our electricity use by between 62 and 81% relative to 2018 levels. So I suppose that comes down to efficiency. And there's an affordability question there as well, if you can't upgrade to the latest, greatest, most cleanest, whatever. But also they're talking about increasing uh, the use of renewable energy by up to 80%, mix of offshore and onshore wind and solar power. Now, one of the limitations of wind or solar is that it depends on weather. It depends on daylight in the case of solar. So nighttime, you're not going to get anything there. We therefore need proper storage solutions so that any excess can be put away for the rainy day, so to speak. Do we have the technology to achieve these goals at the moment? 
Absolutely. Can I take your two points there, Will, in order that you, you present them? First of all, our own savings. Obviously, we need to retrofit 500,000 homes, which is very much in this plan. The National Retrofit Plan is there. There's a lot of born and owner workers and other workers who might have lost their jobs in peace and other industries who can be retrained. And we need a national apprenticeship program to make sure people are trained up in this. And obviously at home, things like food waste and recycling and everything else means you don't have to recreate the product, which causes a lot of energy. And of course, conservation, turning off lights and everything else and, and every, uh, cutting down on energy is the first point. But in, in your point around renewables, right, you're right that, you know, solar and wind do have a certain, uh, you know, limitations in terms of the, the sun is always there, even though we might see it all the time. And there's like 800 acres, I know, in Westmead, uh, you know, actually planning with planning for, for solar. And it is a very viable solution. The wind on cutaway bogs and other places is also viable. However, we have one of the largest capacities in the world for offshore wind. And many companies, I know one pulled out during the week, the Norwegians, but actually there are about 40 other companies who are looking at offshore wind because the potential in Ireland is massive. A larger investment by the company, but much better return long term because the wind, as we know, blows much better at sea. But also, you mentioned some of the others. It's so important that we look at geothermal, hydro, biogas, biofuels, uh, you know, hydrogen. And also, Ireland, after Antarctica, is the second most appropriate place in the world for wave. Off Galway, off our west coast, the wild Atlantic way. is I know it's an initial investment, but the long-term effects of the waves constantly churning, producing that energy, can actually be a solution that everybody can buy into. Because obviously, the wind and, and, and solar, there's planning issues, different things with onshore. But when we get that right, I think we go to the other eight or ten renewables that are there and have the right cocktail and get the right planning and the right location. We have huge potential. The plan says... Here's a, here's a philosophical question for you, though. If it's going to take money and investment to harness the energy of the waves, should it be the state that does that uh, for the sake of future revenues? And look at how, how the Scandinavian yeah. countries, for instance, have a great tax base because of their oil and, and their energy right. infrastructure. Would we be missing a trick to farm it out to private investment? It probably needs both to be realistic, to, to get it at the scale we need. However, your point is very well made, and that is this. We, we, we signed away our offshore gas and oil to so many different companies, you know, throughout the 80s and 90s. You know, deals that were done in, in, in small offices that signed away a future huge amount of revenue for this country. I agree with you. If we're going to have something like Wave, which has the fantastic power for generation, I think we should be keeping it with very much within our own economy and, you know, going forward. However, there's something I've failed to mention that's micro-generation. One of the ideas in this plan is that farmers, businesses, communities who generate their own electricity can sell it back into the grid because any, anyone, any economist in the entire world will tell you that the easiest way and the best way and the most economical way to produce electricity is as near as possible to the people who require it. So if we can get this grid you know, going, we're not a huge nation, we're an island nation, we're ideally situated for so many of these energies, but I think microgeneration needs to be something that's definitely upscaled rather than all these interconnectors, which, let's face it, if, if Great Britain, like we saw what's happening with Brexit, you know, the Russians and everybody else can pull the plug at any point, we need to become energy sufficient within our own country. There are 14 points in the plan relating specifically to the Midlands, and again, some of the language which here I can imagine eyes rolling when we talk about uh, strategic partnerships, feasibility studies, terms of that yeah. nature. Can you maybe find some substance in this for us? 
Well, really, I think, look at, you know, the Midlands, no more than any other other region of the country, needs to, to look at the five areas, the two we've talked about already, electricity, micro-generation, uh, homes, retrofitting. We have huge capacity in the Midlands because of so many different workers who, who have the skills relative to what we could do. And so many of our homes are in rural areas, which could do with the retrofitting plan. Transport in the Midlands, obviously, is, is, is a dearth of it. And we needn't go into it, the Monagarda loan line and countless other examples that really could, will have to be part of future planning. But in terms of agriculture, we're very much a, an agricultural base here in the Midlands. And I think we, we have to look at agriculture in the broad sense here, right? And that is in terms of climate justice, which is mentioned again and again. One third of our economy depends on agriculture. We have to put it in context. We have six million cattle in the country, okay? A neighbour of mine pointed out, James A. Caroon, that we have 50 million yaks in Mongolia, 200 million cattle in, in Brazil. So the reality is, it's not just about culling the herd. It's also about efficiencies, charges work working with farmers here to manage emissions, to, you know, to reduce them, and also forestation. We have like 11% forestation. We have huge potential for that here in the Midlands as well. Like it's 50% in Finland. There's an awful lot of land which might be suitable for growing trees, which, as we know, make a huge contribution to, to managing carbon into the future. So I think like every other region in the country, we just need to play our part. But getting back to your question at the very beginning of the programme, it will cost us a, a little in terms of finance, but it will cost us a lot more if we don't do it. And by making certain cutbacks in certain areas, like I said, recycling, using less energy, you know, get, getting the retrofit programme, making it affordable for people, not you know, punishing people, more public transport and more jobs in renewables. I think at the end of the day, you know, there's, like, there's, there's a million people in America working in the recycling industry. There's huge jobs in, 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 in actual, you know, making sure that we produce that carbon, but also have a more sustainable uh, uh, model going forward. Dennis, I appreciate your time. It's hard to condense 475 points. I'm not sure how good a job we did, but I think we've touched on some of the themes at least. <laughs> Thanks for taking the call. Always good to talk to you, Will. Thanks a million. Dennis Leonard from Kinnegad. Just some of the examples of projects for the Midlands. They talk about developing a green HQ in Offaly. Whatever that is. Also expanding a green energy park. This would be the road green energy park on the site of the former road power station. A Midlands retrofit one-stop shop. A new digital learning hub for Longford Town. These are some of the various projects mentioned in the new climate action plan. Next, if you are renting and you're not happy with your landlord, your landlord won't fix problems. Well, half of renters are in the same boat. They've loaded you with an unfair rent increase. Four out of ten say the same. But help is at hand from Threshold, which is launching its Own Your Rights campaign. And CEO John Mark McCafferty is with us. What do you mean by Own Your Rights? John Mark, good morning. Good morning, Will. Yes, um, so at Threshold, we're a national um, uh, housing charity and we specialise in assisting people who are renting in the private rented sector. Um, but we're very much aware that not everyone knows that we exist or what we do. Um, and the purpose of Own Your Rights is to promote among uh, the, the wider rental population and across uh, the wider Irish society that we're there to, to hear people's stories, to assist people, to advise people um, in the, uh, the details of the Residential Tenancies Act and to advocate on their behalf if required. And we often stop homelessness before it starts. We were involved in a lot of homeless prevention work by working with tenants, working with landlords um, and assisting with, say, um, an increase in, say, a rent supplement payment or um, assisting with certain disputes um, in order to 
um, maximise the chance of a family or an individual staying in their rented home. Um, so really, Own Your Rights is about saying to um, renters across the country that we're there. We, we're, we're reaching out to communities across Ireland with, with high levels of private renting. Um, that would include you know, younger renters, including students, and also harder to reach migrant communities, um, such as, say, Brazilian or Eastern European nationals. But also just to remind um, wider Irish society, the threshold is there um, on 1800 454 454 and on web chats through our thresholds.ie email, ad- email address. Um, in order to assist people, people can also email us at advice at thresholds.ie. Um, Let's explore where that might lead, John Mark, because take Athlone, for instance. There's been a chronic shortage of student accommodation, uh, particularly this year, and a person may feel lucky to have any sort of uh, a roof over their heads. If the washing machine is broken and the landlord doesn't fix it, what can you realistically do for them? Well, we can remind them of the rights. Now, I'm absolutely, you know... I agree with you, you know, um, there's a kind of inequality of arms, you know, in terms of uh, tenants maybe feeling that if they approach a landlord, the landlord about something like a broken uh, washing machine, the landlord may uh, increase the rent or may indeed end the trying in the tenancy. Um, but I think, you know, the vast majority of landlords are reasonable um, and the vast majority of them will respond uh, in a positive way. Um, if uh, tenants um, have have an issue, and I think what's important for us is that you know just before we launched this campaign last week, um, we conducted a survey. Um, 500 private renters came back to us in age between 18 and 45, and they said that well, four out of five of them didn't know, um, or they, they knew little or nothing about the help that was available from the likes of ourselves and thresholds, or indeed other services like the RTB. Um, and yet, at the same time, they're saying that um, but half of them say it's common to have problems with a landlord who refuses to fix something, or one in three have experienced some level of um, discrimination. And indeed, um, there, there appear to be consistently high levels of stress and anxiety among tenants around uh, Ireland brought on by the, the crisis situation in the rental market. So I suppose this campaign is really just to remind people to to approach us on 1800 454 454. Now, I'm uh, sure if there was a landlord uh, who who could offer their own perspective, they might challenge uh, the notion that there isn't enough protection for renters, particularly around increases where in rent pressure zones it's laid down very clearly how often it can happen and by how much. But it seems to be the experience of some renters, not all landlords play by the rules. Yeah, look, I mean, you have, you have good landlords, good good tenants. You can have bad landlords and bad tenants. And, you know, um, there are certain, certain circumstances where um, the rent pressures of legislation and, and the new legislation isn't necessarily being adhered to by landlords. Um, and I take your point earlier about the fact that, you know, some tenants may uh, think twice about, um, you know, challenging what would be an illegal uh, rent review. But there are um, there is legislation there, um, and and indeed um, at the same time there are um, occasions um, that landlords um, maybe don't understand the legislation or choose not to follow the legislation, and and we certainly have uh, experienced um, people coming to us who have had you know very significant uh, rent increases way over and above what used to be the 4% annual um, increase. 
Um, and you know, we're assisting people across the board on a whole range of issues from landlords um, withholding uh, deposits, uh, not returning deposits without kind of uh, justification or or these illegal rent increases, or indeed um, uh, a notice of termination. And sometimes those notices of termination are valid and they're legal, but they still uh, cause huge uh, issues for the family or the individual involved because it can mean the end of their, their tenancy. Um, and trying to seek accommodation now is particularly difficult just given the abject lack of private rented accommodation and the, the wider lack of housing across Ireland. So um, the idea behind the campaign is really to to remind people that Threshold is a national housing organisation. It's there for private renters to provide very specific tailored advice um, that relates uh, to the very specific um, circumstances of a private renter or their family um, and that we can also provide advocacy um, in liaising with um, a landlord or indeed um, uh, assistance saving a tenancy. So um, just, just to reiterate, the number being 1800-454-454. Indeed, and threshold.ie, and you've got that nice little chat web box that opens up there and makes it yeah. very easy to get in touch. John Mac- Mark McCafferty, always great to talk with you. Thank you for taking Thanks, our Will. call. Clock Balakola become back-to-back hurling champions in leash. Well, you can have been happening around the Midlands in around 20 minutes. They're not the only champions to congratulate and to celebrate. And how well is ABBA's new... It was hotly anticipated and the reviews are actually very good. Hmm. Now, a massive fireball killed at least 99 people in Sierra Leone's capital, of Freetown and many more were seriously injured reports of over uh, 90 people currently in various hospitals in that area now the blast is believed to have happened when a fuel tanker collided with another truck at a petrol station on Friday night and the flames spread very very rapidly working nearby was Jonathan Donoghue. He is a logistics and sustainability consultant at All for One Child Prosperity Centre, which is an NGO in the area. And he is originally from Berlin, not too far from Athlone. Good morning, Jonathan. Morning, well, how are you? Very well, thank you. Can you describe the scene there uh, and give us some sense of the area in which this happened? Yeah, so um, it happened on Bayberay Road, which is the main uh, eastern road from Freetown to the outer outskirts of the city. And at about 10 to 10 on Friday night, as you said, a, a tanker got hit by a, a truck. But initially that started to leak fuel. The explosion didn't happen immediately. And that area has a lot of taxi drivers, like a taxi rank, what we call Okada drivers here, which is basically uh, motorcycles for single taxi use up to maybe 60 taxis can be parked there at any one time. So as the fuel began to spill from the tanker, people ran to gather the fuel. So they used any, any kind of uh, vestibule they could find, um, gallon drums, open containers. And as they were carrying the fuel away, that spread the, the fuel across the road. And then there was no reports of how the fire started, but when it did start, it went up fairly quickly. And, you know, over 180 people were, were caught up in that. And since I've talked to uh, Sinead earlier today, that number is now 107 people have died oh, just wow. in the last few hours. Yeah. How big an area was affected? 
So that's at the main junction with uh, Old Wharf. That's the area that our NGO serves. It's about 15,000 people. But that main roadway at the head of the road, it's a highway. So the, the issue at the minute now is uh, a lot of those people are in vehicles, so they're not necessarily from the area. And no one knows where they were traveling to or from. So that's the issue with even families knowing if their lost ones were caught up in this or, you know, that's that's a big, a big part of the issue at the minute is identification. Yeah. We can try and imagine if such a horrific incident happened in Dublin, at least, you know, there are good links, modern hospitals. We may criticise the health service, but obviously they have resources here. What sort of operation swung into effect in Sierra Leone when this disaster took place? So uh, Sierra Leone relies heavily on, on third parties like NGOs. So um, immediately the National Disaster Management Agency stepped in and partners they invited like ourselves, the WHO, UNICEF, um, the Red Cross were all called to the scene immediately to set up a, a command centre. Um, the, the, the hospitals here are overwhelmed at the best of times. You know, this country just got over an Ebola crisis. So they're used to... to the triaging and the the logistics of all this but you know as you said this could happen in the most modern country in the world to to deal with this with, with burns and issues like this it's it's very very hard for any country to deal with let alone a third world country like Sierra Leone. Bringing it back to yourself Jonathan what have you been doing to try and deal with this? Um, so at the minute we're we're doing family tracing so trying to to go through the community and find out what families have lost you know have have lost uh, loved ones or even have them missing because it's the the government has been concentrating at the minute but mainly on injured which is you know mm. of course mm. that's the, the main issue is now trying to keep the the injured comfortable and alive but just going through the community even up to last night late last night um a family i visited just discovered they lost you know their 12 year old child oh, and you know and it's it's the miscommunication through you know it happens in Ireland people spread stuff on WhatsApp and that happens in this country as well and that was the main reason I think a lot of people joined the fuel collection on Friday evening was in that hour and a half people sent texts say come up here and get some fuel and that's you know sadly sadly happens here as much as it does at home but um yeah mainly family tracing at the minute and we've been we've been dealing with some minor wounds um, from people that have been. Over, the hospital has been overwhelmed, as you can imagine. So anyone that has minor burns, we've brought them to our centre and to our clinic, which is adjacent to our centre, to, to, to manage those wounds until they can go back to the, to the hospitals. And while they may have social networking, is much of your work almost door-to-door, mouth-to-mouth, so to speak, word-of-mouth? Yeah, it's on the ground in the last hour. I just went to the community with the mayor of Freetown to show them the families, because our workers here, you know, they, they know this community a lot better than the than the politicians and those from Freetown. So we've been, you know, introducing them to to the families and stuff like that. And just uh, yeah, it's all it's it's door to door. You know, it's just talking to the people on the ground. Oh, it's a harrowing experience, Jonathan. But just give us an idea of what you would normally be doing in in normal times when there wasn't a disaster like this taking priority. Yeah, so our building is, it was initially built to be an orphanage and there is plenty of orphanages in Sierra Leone, up to 100 in the capital. And we have changed our model of care to uh, family reunification and family-based care. So if we receive a child, we want to try and put that child back with their family, back with their next of kin or even close um, neighbours or kinship, you know. So it's trying to keep the families together as opposed to families having to give up their child because the majority of I think 80% of the orphans in this country actually have living parents so it's trying to keep the family unit together 
and not have to have a child live in a, an orphanage all the way through till the year of, age of 18. How long do you expect to remain in the country, Jonathan? Um, I'm going to return home for Christmas, but uh, we're going to come back and uh, it's probably at least another year. We want to eventually hand my, my position over to a, a, a local so that they can have full autonomy, you know. Jonathan, I salute what you do and I'm grateful for your call. Thank you very much for giving us some sense of what's happened there. Thank you very much. Jonathan Donoghue is a logistics and sustainability consultant with All for One Child Prosperity Centre, which is in Sierra Leone. And he's originally from County Westmeath. James was in a popular fast food outlet in Carlo and says he wasn't asked, nor indeed was anybody in front of him asked for a COVID cert. He says you could sit down, no problem. I asked why they weren't checking and I got no reply. The same occurred in a popular establishment in Portlaoise. But you had to leave your name and number in a book for contact tracing purposes. I noted in the book I wasn't asked to produce my certificate. Hmm. Now, there are some people who would say proper order. This COVID certificate is discriminatory and maybe some businesses have adopted that view. And then there are others who say if you're going to have rules and regulations for the sake of preventing the spread of disease, you can't have some signing in and some signing out. It can't be a la carte. You're either all in or all out. I'll let you decide who's in the right. Will, I agree we need more buses, says Maureen in Mount Mellick. The town link, which connects Tullamore, Mount Mellick and Portlaoise, is absolutely brilliant. But what about people who live down long rural lanes or on roads far away from the main route and it is too far for them to connect with the bus? I know there are many people who would love to use town link, but the distance is too great and that is the problem and you're right but we are very much spread out in this country unlike in many other nations where people gather in cities in huge numbers as i said in america it's more than eight out of ten people living in a city it's a fraction of that here in ireland raharney hit their first west Mees senior hurling crown in five years also Clock Balakala scoring back-to-back wins in County Leash. What's the picture in Offaly? What else happened in sport over the weekend? All that next. The Monday Sports Review, brought to you by Slater Kia. Introducing the new EV6 fully electric SUV with a range of over 500 kilometres. Find out more at Slater Kia Mullingar. Lots to cover today, including the hunt for a new Westmeath Camogie manager coming to an end. Also, a young Offaly man may be moving to play professional rugby in France. And a curious tale about being stuck in the toilet. Anyway, more on that in a moment. Robbie Fahey, good morning. Morning to you, Will. How are you getting on? Very well, thank you. Let's start in County Leash. Back-to-back wins for Clock Balacola. Yeah, and what a way... They decided to do it as well, coming from seven points down at half time against their old rivals, Boris and Osterie Kilcotton, to do so. An absolutely fabulous game of hurling and leash yesterday to decide where the Bob O'Keefe Cup will reside for 2021. It's a story of two halves, really. The Boris and Osterie Kilcotton forwards started off like a house on fire, shot them into a very, very uh, 
big early lead but then in the second half the clock balakala backs just seemed to get on top they're all over them like a rash and they just couldn't figure out then how to change up uh, the scoring system a crucial goal coming early in the second half through Stephen Bergen for clock balakala but the interesting thing about it was clock were always coming from behind always trying to catch up with Boris Nostri Willie, Willie Dunphy gave him the lead for the first time in the 57th minute and then the drama just ensued from there on both sides were level as normal time expired Lee Clear and PJ Scully traded scores going into injury time and then with a about a minute left on the clock in injury time a long ball down the field from a puck out uh, a clock balakala forward was fouled and picky Myers sent over the crucial score to give clock balakala the win i mean it was just a, a tremendous contest full of score and you'd Stephen Meyer knocked over 14 points i think nine frees for clock balakala pj scully got 12 points and nine frees for boris and Osteri, kill cotton it was just a great end-to-end game from start to finish clock balakala captain picky Meyer was talking afterwards to uh, jack nolan he said there was something different about the team this year when their backs were against the wall yeah i think the game's gone by we would have panicked we would have, we could have folded but we were after doing such work to get it back to there to get it back to, to, to level and then of course to hit a, a sucker punch of a goal but it was just you have to keep your head in them occasions like you have to it's all about getting the next score and thankfully we got the next couple of points and then we got back level and we just went on from there you got some super scores you got a great one yourself from out in the wing you had uh, Willie Dunphy popping up for two in a row yeah. and then Lee Clear hitting massive yeah. scores on the side just I had to be telling Lee all year to hit the ball into us and <laughs> today thankfully he came up trumps but uh, at some of the points we got there when the pressure came on like Willie's points Willie got a couple of points outstanding scores you wouldn't see him anywhere else and that's what we kind of have we have big game players and thankfully the, the players stood up today and delivered the goods and then you had an, an engineer in the middle of the field as well eh? <laughs> she's been unbelievable all year unbelievable last few years He's just—he's probably remarkable. He just stays going and going and going, and I don't know how he finds the energy or where he finds it, but he was unbelievable now today. I know Will. I'll have uh, Jack Nolan on the on the blower to me if I don't point out that uh, Ballygehan, which is now Clock Balacala, actually won back to back titles in 1917 and 1918. So it's over 100 years since that kind of mm. that parish won back to back. So a massive achievement for them and something I know they had on the radar at the start of the year in a big way. Where do they go next? They'll now advance to play the Wexford champions in the Leinster Club Championship. That's at the end of November. I think it's scheduled for the 28th of November. I was just taking a quick glance there. So the Wexford final is still to be played, as far as I'm aware. So it'll be interesting to see who comes out of that one. The strangest story of the week now. Indeed, yeah. Buff Egan. People will be aware of who Buff is. He's kind of a well-known personality in Ireland. He goes around to a lot of uh, games and he does a lot of uh, social media content. He actually ended up uh, posting for help on Twitter after he got uh, stuck in the bathrooms <laughs> in Omar Park in Port Leash yesterday <laughs> after the final. Um, what did he say? Uh, well, I have the audio clip here now, so we'll take a quick listen to Buff. Hello, if someone sees this, I went into the toilet in Port Leash and the doors after being locked. The doors are after being locked. If anyone leashed you sees this, I'm being I'm locked into the toilet. <laughs> did anybody come to his rescue? They did, to be fair, they did. He subsequently posted uh, outside of War Park as well. So someone in Leash GA has seen the video somewhere. Like, I mean, it's got 3,000 likes on Twitter. It's been shared everywhere. It's uh, one of those things that just happens. I don't know how he ended up stuck in the bathroom, but there you go. A nice novel piece of uh, uh, goings on from the Lee Senior Hurling final. Just as well he had his phone. <laughs> All right. <laughs> He's never without it, that fella. Let's move on then. Yeah, we'll go to Westmead next, where Raharney are the Senior Hurling champions for the first time in five years. Killian Doyle struck 11 points and yeah it was a, a really good performance a ding dong contest again much like in Leash they had three points to spare over Castletown Gagan it's Castletown's third defeat in succession in the Westmead Senior Hurling Decider so a lot of heartache going on there for Castletown Gagan a late save from Raharney netminder Arma Q crucial in denying CTG a chance to win the game in extra time 
CTG again much like um, Clock Balacala were coming from behind for most of the game the closest they got uh, was two points at one stage and the big talking point going into the game was I guess the format in Westmead this season meant that Raharney advanced directly to the final from the group stage Castletown Gagan had to beat Clonkill mm. in the semi-final so Raharney had about four weeks in between games you know yourself Ring Ruskin set in at that point yeah, well, exactly. It could be seen as a, a positive or a negative. You could be rested, but you could also be rusty. And in the end, it uh, probably proved to their advantage. Yeah, it did. Look, the Castletown beat uh, Clonkill in the semi-final. Clonkill had beaten them in the last two senior Hurling deciders. So for them, mentally getting over Clonkill was such a big thing. And I just wonder, looking back now, whether they might have left a lot mentally out on the pitch against Clonkill and then, you know, gearing up again for a final against Raharney. Raharney could concentrate for a whole month on that. Castletown, obviously, a dual club as well. Raharney now, incidentally, are the third most successful side in the history of Westmead Club Hurling. 14 uh, titles alongside Castle Pollard. Still three off Clonkill. Mm. There seems to be some substance to that idea the rest helped insofar as they were able to put in some tough training sessions. Exactly. That was the, the thought process of their man- Raharney manager, Brendan McHugh. I knew there was fair hunger in us. Like, you know, obviously when you're when you've three or four weeks waiting there and you're saying, Oh, will we get a bit rusty or or will we have lost a bit of our edge? But I think every every game every game this year I think we brought a little bit more to the table, you know? And uh, and it's a credit to the boys. But the things those players went through this year. The things they went through, like, even in COVID, and we'd give, you'll be going at 8 o'clock, and the next day to go at 5 past 8, and sure, Michael Dyle will be the far side clocking them on the canal. You know what I mean? We, we, we didn't train together, but there was a lad watching from the far side of the river, you know, and stuff like that. And lads went and done, we sent out cross their workouts. Absolute hellish stuff. And lads sent back videos of themselves doing them, and, and I know they did all do them, you know? I know they all done them. So, you know, you have to, you get what you deserve out of this, you know. And it was, uh, when you put the work in, it's your destiny to get there. Listen to what they went through in Raharney there this year from uh, Brendan. I don't know if I would have liked to have been a part of that panel. It seems like they went through a bit of hell, but they've got the big payoff in the end and, and that's what counts. And they'll go on now to play the Dublin champions, which is either going to be Kilmacud Crokes or Nafina in the Leinster Club Championship quarterfinals. So they'll get a really, really interesting task there going forward and something definitely to look forward to for Harney for the first time since 2016. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting as one word. Tough, punishing. There are many other adjectives that may apply. Uh, there was a quick word from John Shaw too. There was indeed, yeah. People be aware, John Shaw, councillor, former Westmead captain and Raharney veteran. He actually came on in the game as well and he just paid passion, uh, tribute to the passion in both camps after the game. It's a way of life out there, like, you know, and, um, you know, it's just the, the passion we have out there. It's just in- incredible, like, I mean, I was watching the bit at the Kenny final there today and, you know, there's as many passionate people in Raharney and Castellone, I said that as well, as there is in Ballyhale or in any part of Kenny as well. John, county finals are so hard hard to win and Castletown knows it, beaten in three finals, beaten in the 63rd minute last year, he came, popped up this year and won it. They're so hard to win. Ah, incredible. Like, and I, I would have, you know, I'd feel, you know, a heartache for, 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 for Castletown. I know if you do them very, very well. They're such a decent, honest, you know, hard-working bunch and skillful bunch. And just sometimes, you know, you, you come up against a better team. And that's, I'd say, I'd say they'll, probably, they'll probably look back on last year's defeat maybe with more, uh, you know, sorrow, I suppose, maybe today is like, you know. But that's the basic goal. Your heart would go out to the Castletown lads, really. Like three finals back to back to lose like that. The effort that you put in every single year to go back to the well and try and get back to that same position. Like the the really interesting thing, Will, I find about these, uh, like the likes of Leash and Westmead, is the matchups you get in the finals because 
the club hurling is so condensed and there's there's not as many teams we'll say as the bigger counties so you get the matchups in the finals of the the inter-county players coming together and marking one another it's always really interesting to watch and it was the same case yesterday like Castletown have a, plenty of Westmead players there the likes of Angus Clark and they'll have to go back to the well next year for sure Well I was listening to the Castletown boss yesterday he was quite magnanimous he was indeed, yeah. Look, Pat O'Brien, he's, uh, he's been around the block a few times now and uh, speaking to Jerry afterwards, he was just very gracious about the whole thing in general, I thought. Ah, yeah, look, it's, it's very difficult to come and you come for the third year after being so close for the last two and being so close again, but you have to give great credit to my lads at the end of the day. I mean, the resilient bunch of Gossens and they turned up and they just came up a little bit short and made a few mistakes here and there and got punished by a good team and heartiest congratulations to Raharney. They're a proud hurling club with some great quality players and contribute big time to Westmead hurling so look at we hold up our hands we come up short very very honest assessment there I'm sure we'll agree indeed let's move on then to Offaly and we know the picture of the Offaly senior hurling final at last we do indeed Kulderi and St. Rhinus are going to meet in the final it's the first time they'll have met in the deciders since 2015 and Kulderi came out on top in that occasion obviously everyone will be aware St. Rhinus are going for three in a row Kulderi came out on top over Shinron on Saturday afternoon that was a real ding dong contest as well story of the weekend teams coming from behind Kulderi were 3-7 to 1-4 up at one point in the second half Shinron then showed great character to battle back I mean that was their first semi-final in nine years they were going to try and reach their first final since 1960 they've never won a senior title so it was a really really big occasion for them every time though Shinron cut it back to around three points two or three points Kildare just pulled out that little bit extra there was loads of big performances Killian Sampson Jason Sampson for Shinron uh, Kevin Connolly Daniel Miller and Keen Burke got the uh, goals for Kildare Kildare veteran Brian Carroll told Jerry Russell after their win against Shinron that he's enjoying every minute as his career is coming to a close yeah, I look very lucky, Jerry. I'm very grateful to be still still involved. You know, I know I'm not at the tail end of my career, and that uh, these days are running out. So I'm trying to enjoy them as much as I can, and try and enjoy the trends, try and enjoy the matches. It's not always easy, as you know. But uh, look, we've one more day to look forward to for the for the parish and for the club. And certainly going into a final today's game will really stand to you because you know really put it up to you. Oh look, today then, as I said, we we expected nothing else. It's it's our third time to play them this year, so we know what they're all about. Um, I think every game this championship has been really hard fought. Um, it, it's been a really top quality championship, and uh, as I said, in the final, whoever it be, it'll be a tough day again. And after that, we found out it was going to be a, a repeat of the 2020 final. It was in the other semi-final on Sunday. St. Ryan is overcoming Kilcormac Kalahi by one point in the end, despite having a, a sizable advantage at several stages go- during the game. Ryan is How sizable? Eight-point advantage into the final 12 minutes. That's sore. Ended up coming out by uh, on top by a solitary score. Luke Connor netted the only goal, ended up with uh, 1-8 in total. Carl Kiley hit 12 points for Kilcormac Kalahi. Again, another ding-dong battle from two old rivals. Two big goal chances proved crucial uh, for Kilcormac Kalai in the second half, both saved by St. Rhino's netminder Connor Clancy. But to be fair to Kilcormac Kalai, look, they met in the 2020 final a few months ago. This was a far, far better performance. I know they felt like they maybe didn't give their showing in that final a couple of months ago, but ultimately it just wasn't enough. St. Rhino's manager Ken Hogan, who's also won a county title with Kilderry, so we know them very well, he has the height of respect for Kilderry. Yeah, Kulderi won four titles and, and, and we're quite entitled to win them. You know, uh, great players, you know, and obviously a, a great, you know, bench to come in as well. They brought in Andy Connolly, Easton Martin Corcoran, Kevin Brady didn't come in, Barry Teehan will be back for the final. All these lads are chomping at the bit. They just absolutely love their hurling in Kulderi. And if, if a guy was missing, they'd nearly go looking for him, Joe. You know, that's my experience with him. You know, have a savage tradition. 
that's why they're, they're the top notches in, in county championships in Offaly. So, like, we're very aware of that and we respect that. But we just got over the line today at KK. You know, I met all their players after the match. They gave it absolutely everything, you know. And a ball under the crossbar from Keelan could have been just the same. But uh, Connor got a touch on it. And thank God, you know, that we just got over the line. And it's, it's fantastic to play in the final. Well, look, we'll probably meet closer to the final. Certainly, we now know Rhinus and Coolary. If there's a team you know more than St. Rhinus, it's Coolary. You had a lot of previous involvement there. I know the height of respect you have for them. Certainly, that's going to be huge for the neutral mouthwatering final to look forward to. Yeah, it's a great final to be looking forward to. Coolary and St. Rhinus, you know. And uh, Coolary, obviously, a, a number of years ago, you know, caught uh, Rhinus, you know, at the date and had, had a wonderful county final win. So we're very aware of their experience and their tradition. And this is going to be one hell of a game. Ken there speaking with Joe Troy after the game. An interesting uh, footnote to that county final will be the fact that Hogan is bidding to become the second most successful manager in the history of Offaly Club Hurling. He's already got uh, two or three titles, I think. I can't remember which, but I think it's three. But uh, he's about four behind uh, Patrick Joe Whelan, uh, who all won seven with Barr. So that's a very interesting, I think, side note to the county final. Indeed, nice stat to have. Now, let's move on to ladies, uh, GAA. We have new ladies football champions in the Lake County. We do indeed. Milltown ended St. Mary's Rochford Bridge's attempt at winning three back-to-back titles in Westmead. Sarah Dillon, everyone will know from her exploits with Westmead this season, scored the decisive goal. It was a 110-8 to point win. So now Milltown are going to go on and play the Meath champions in the Leinster quarterfinals. So they'll have another tough task ahead of them. Staying in Westmeath, the hunt for a new camogie manager at an end at last. It is indeed. Former Offaly boss Albert Kelly is going to take in the reins after the departure of Darren McCormick. He stood down after a year in charge. Uh, Westmeath Camogie have told me that the backroom team will be confirmed over the next couple of days. So Albert's obviously been very successful. The St. Ryan is man. He's been in charge of Lockley and Gales, I know, in Westmeath as well, and Clonkill, I believe. So he knows Westmeath. He's been at a few of the uh, camogie games this weekend and over previous weeks, so he's set to hit the ground running there. All right, let's move on then to cross-channel soccer and obviously we'll come to the Man United management situation in a moment, but there have been some changes elsewhere in the league. There have indeed. Uh, Norwich and Aston Villa both sacked their managers. Norwich in particular could have an impact on uh, two young Irish players, Andrew Womabama Delhi and Adam Ida. Uh, Daniel Farkas sacked after their win over Brentford at the weekend Omabama Deli had just broken into the team there he'd clearly won over uh, Farkas Trust and it was a big moment for him Ida maybe on the other hand might be grateful of a new manager it seemed like Fark wasn't going to get a run leading the line for them so it'll be interesting to see how they bounce back Aston Villa got rid of Dean Smith um, seems like and Roberto Martinez and Steven Gerrard are being talked about as the initial favourites to take over from him so this is the kind of season for sacking managers uh, right going into the international window you'll have two weeks to embed them with the squad get a few training sessions before the next game not likely to see Ole Gunnar Solskjaer sacked though will you be shocked to know even after the derby defeat against Manchester City why? well who's out there that's the that's the candidates they, Conte very publicly put his name out there he's ended up at Spurs then you're looking around at the rest of the managers um, that are available at the moment there's not many high profile names those who are at clubs Brendan Rodgers is the current bookies favourite to replace him don't know how Man United uh, mm. supporters will feel about that though well I wonder would they have David Moyes back that's very interesting with West Ham are going at the minute four wins in the bounce no more so against Liverpool yesterday and they're up to third in the Premier League table so I would say I don't think Man United fans would have him back but he's putting a very good hand up that he can be successful when he's given the resources like West Ham pumped a lot of money into the club the last couple of years You say third in the table I mean they're level on points with Man City could they possibly 
be in the frame for catching Chelsea eventually only three points in it three points in it yeah but you'd have to feel that eventually the, the strength and depth of the squads of your Chelsea's Man City's Liverpool will tell and West Ham they've Europa League uh, football to take into account this year as well Thursdays and Sundays Thursdays and Saturdays is a very hard thing to do they still need that extra one or two players they might just have the best midfield combination in the Premier League though Declan Rice and Thomas Socek in the middle of the park so they have a very strong spine whether they have enough when they're rotating after Europa League to keep up and stay in the Champions League spots I'd have serious questions about Back to Man United and obviously some people's opinions carry more weight than others Gary Neville as a former captain He's surely influential. What did he say? He, uh, he's he been very remiss now to, to criticise Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, but he's actually come out now and said that he thinks it's getting to the point where things are so bad that the, the future of the manager might have to be considered. Uh, let's have a listen to what he said after the match. Everyone thought in the summer they got the recruitment right with the signing of Varane, Sancho, and then obviously the late signing of Cristiano Ronaldo. The club have not planned for this because they've got the plan behind Holly. They've got the staff in behind him. Nobody's expected that Manchester United would sink so low at this point in the season. So when you hear a club legend like that coming out and speaking so forthright, Roy Keane was obviously very forthright in his comments after the game at the weekend as well. I can't see, they would have sacked him by now I think if they were going to do it, I'd say he's going to last out the season and then they'll probably take a look at where they're going from there. All right, let's finish on rugby. Loch Nan, a very well-known name around Burr. Could be a well-known name in France soon. It will indeed, yeah. He signed a three-year contract to play in the French Pro D2 with Aureliac. Uh, he's obviously been involved with the under-20s this season. We're talking about Ronan Loch Nan, for the Loch record. Yep. Yeah, Ronan Loch Nan, yeah. He's been involved with the Irish under-20s and uh, with the home provinces as well. He was with Leinster, I believe, and then he was uh, playing a few games at Munsters Academy as well. But when the opportunity like this comes up to play professionally in France, uh, the Pro D2 is actually quite a good level over there. There's plenty of internationals playing it'll be week in and week out and definitely a reason for everyone uh, in in Burr and in his uh, former Cistercian College in Roscrae to keep an eye on the French Pro D2 in the upcoming season What age is he? He is 20 years of age so it's a big step for a young man but I've no doubt that he'll shine he plays hooker like so Joe, the French, it'll be good exposure to him and hopefully, you know, a lot of players have used that platform to come and bounce back. He's not the only Burr man. Obviously, Jack Regan is playing with the Ospreys in Wales at the minute. So there's definitely a collection of Burr natives around uh, Europe making an impact in the rugby scene. Great stuff, Robbie, as always. Thank you very much. Next sport on Midlands 103 at one o'clock. Lots of comments to get through, such as, Will, what is the point in a COVID cert if vaccinated people can still become infected and pass it on? I don't really see the benefit, says this listener. We were told the vaccine was going to be a game changer and we are still waiting for the game to change. Also, Will, I don't think it's discriminatory to ask for a COVID certificate, says Edel. We are in a pandemic after all. On the question of booster injections, a healthcare worker says when we were initially vaccinated, it took place at work, but our boosters are going to be done externally in a vaccination centre. This means healthcare staff will have to leave work, possibly for up to half a day in order to receive their vaccine. Madness. If it was given in-house, as was on the last occasion, staff would only need half an hour away from their job. On COVID certificates again, a listener in Clara says, we are very lucky here to have a fine restaurant, Gel's Kitchen, amazing staff, the boss is lovely, and they adhere to COVID protocols to the T. About Bordemona and climate change, Will... The man who was talking about training for workers, for retrofitting, well, that's great, but the problem is management won't release any employees for training courses. Oh, we'll have to query that one. And Will, could you please give a shout-out 
for Colin McLaren, aged 11, from Port Arlington. He is competing in Leisha's Next Superstar. He is 11 years old and he's singing Let It Be by the Beatles and is a huge music fan. So he would be delighted to receive your support if you can. Now, let's move on to something else because it is the Dementia Understand Together campaign yet again, inspiring you, whatever section of society you are in, to stand together with the half a million Irish people whose families have been affected by dementia. And we want to create an Ireland that embraces and includes people living with dementia and which offers them solidarity and offers their loved ones solidarity. And there are many things you can do, whether individually or in your community, to support people and families living with dementia. So let's find out more. When it comes to supporting people living with dementia, you might ask, is there something I can do? The answer is actually more than you think. Nine in ten of us believe people living with dementia have the right to be active citizens in their communities, but sometimes they need support to stay connected and engaged. It starts with understanding that everyone with dementia has a different experience. So talk to them and their family. Ask them how they are and how you can help. Look around your community. Is your social or sports club welcoming people with dementia? Is your shop accessible and are spaces and amenities easy to use? It is often the small things that make the biggest difference. By being that one person who asks, what can I do? You're making that difference. Free phone 1-800-341-341 or visit understandtogether.ie. From the HSE, in partnership with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland and Age Friendly Ireland. Now let's focus on ABBA. Incredible success from 1974 to 1981 and then their dissolution in 1982 was followed by a resurgence many years later when you consider two Mamma Mia movies, a plethora of tribute acts, 30 million sales and counting for ABBA Gold and they have released new material now called Voyage and their statement says, it has been a while since we made music together. Well, that's an understatement. It's been 40 years. And they say it is foolhardy to wait more than 40 years between albums. So therefore, we have recorded a follow-up to The Visitors. Well, let's see how it's doing. Keith Marshall runs 3345 Records in Mullingar. How are you today, Keith? I'm very good, Will. How are you? Good. Give us some sense of how much demand there is for ABBA, even now. It's unbelievable. Um, it, even when this was announced, I think in September, that this was definitely coming out. It was rumoured for ages it was going to be a new ABBA album because there was a couple of singles released. And there was a song that was kind of rehashed from years ago that was put out as well. And so on, I think it was the, around the 10th of September, around that time, both Voulez-Vous and Arrival, their last two albums, re-entered the album's charts on the strength of this new album coming out. Um, and obviously with the success of Abbott Gold over the years, you, you can't not have it in the shop, really. Um, and the Mamma Mia movies, like you just mentioned, that they're just, they've reached a whole new audience of, like there's, there's still all those Abbott fans from years ago who are still with us, but there's a whole new audience of kids who've seen the Mamma Mia movies who fell in love with that music. So 
on this album, and it was released on the 5th, so that was Friday. Friday, yeah. Ten tracks. We've heard some already pre-released. Don't Shut Me Down. I Still Have Faith in You. What are the rest like? Um, well, look, they've definitely played to their strengths. Uh, there's not, like, it's definitely ABBA. Um, it doesn't attempt to sound current in any way at all. Um, they've stuck to their, their formula, if you, for want of a better word. Um, it just sounds like classic ABBA. ABBA fans will absolutely love this. And their voices have changed a wee bit. I mean, we're down an octave or, or, or so. Oh, definitely down an octave. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's just, their voices don't don't sound exactly the same. But sure, who would at, at that age? I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's definitely they've definitely played to their strengths on it. Anyway. And even on the production, I've heard the odd click or the breath or sounds that are generally edited out in today's music. How well does it hold up? Um, it, yeah, it's, it doesn't sound like anything new, like like anything that would have been recorded in the last couple of years by, say, a modern outfit. Uh, it, it definitely it definitely tried to stick to that classic ABBA formula of just great pop songs. Um, and obviously there's a, a, a tour imminent as well, uh, which would be interesting to see how that goes as well, you know. I'm looking at the reviews. So four stars out of five from Rolling Stone, four stars out of five from The Times. Then you've got The Guardian giving it two stars. It's quite The Guardian mixed. were quite harsh on it. <laughs> yeah, they were. Definitely. How do you uh, rate yeah, it? To me, look, I, I, was, I think The Visitors is probably their best album, in my opinion. I quite loved that album. Um, and I would have been, I think, six when that came out. Uh, so yeah, but I've grown to love it over the years. I think it sounds, I think it sounds fine. You know, I, I quite like it. I I wouldn't rush out and buy it myself, but I could understand why why ABBA fans would love it. You know. And has there been much interest in store over the weekend? I've none left. I won't have any more till the end of the week. <laughs> <laughs> that says everything, then, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Look, it it flew out the door, and they were gone Saturday afternoon. Now, I wouldn't have had a huge amount of them in stock like some of the larger stores, but I had enough, I thought, to see me through till I could reorder more today. Um, but yeah, I've ordered more this morning, obviously. And they'll um, land, hopefully, when? I'll have them probably Wednesday, Thursday, I would say, yeah. Keith, I'm sure you'll get plenty of requests to put one by. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks a million, Will. Cheers for having me on. Talk Keith Marshall soon. runs 3345 Records, great music store in Mullingar if you wish to check him out. Now, James, excuse me, John from Portleash has called and he says, you're not wearing your mask in public anymore. He was in the bank last week and he saw a man not wearing a mask and he claimed he didn't have to wear one in a financial institution. So John put in an inquiry with the banks to find out if this is the case or not. He also encountered this problem in filling stations. A man working in a filling station told him that uh, they would feel threatened if they asked people to wear masks. Now, you know, some retailers are looking the other way rather than perhaps inviting that particular row, but to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there's any exemption if you're in a financial institution. Uh, perhaps when you go to the counter and if you cannot communicate, if somebody needs to read your lips, maybe, I'm, I'm speculating, I don't know, but there isn't any special mention of it in the rules anyway. 
Now, thank you very much for your company over the last three hours. We're going to do it all over again tomorrow morning from nine. Let's have one or two quick comments to wrap up from James in Portlaoise agreeing for climate change. Yes, we need fewer cars. We need more electrical buses. But also there is the option of e-bikes and e-scooters. And unfortunately, there aren't many training courses on how to use these safely. And he feels that would accommodate nearly everybody in towns with far fewer emissions. I hear you, James, but I just don't imagine on a cold winter's morning too many school children saying, yeah, mummy and daddy, I want to go on the e-scooter rather than in the nice, warm, cosy car. And, you know, maybe we have to harden them up a bit. I'm not sure what your take on that would be. Um, But there may be some challenges persuading people that, yeah, you need to be a little bit tougher and do without for the sake of climate change. Thank you, Sinead, and thank you, Kayleigh, for putting it all together. Thank you for listening. Carl James coming next with the afternoon show. Chat to you soon. Bye-bye.